Hello and welcome to Security in Context. My name is Omar Dahi. Security in Context recently hosted a panel discussion, book release, and debate on the politics of the climate change security nexus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst's Political Economy Research Institute. Speaking were authors Michael Clare, Betsy Hartman, and Anne Hendrickson. The occasion was the release of Michael Clare's latest book, All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change, where he provides an examination of the U.S. military's thinking and policy initiatives to mitigate climate change, including mitigating the military's own carbon footprint, but more importantly, why the U.S. military views climate change as a national security threat and what it plans to do about that threat. Also speaking was Betsy Hartman, whose most recent book is The America Syndrome, Apocalypse, War, and Our Call to Greatness. Hartman situates the debate about climate change and security within a longer trajectory of apocalyptic thinking in U.S. history. For Hartman, the climate change security nexus has brought together a strange alliance of activists, NGOs, international institutions, and governments who exaggerate the current and future impact of climate change on security, each for their own purposes. Also speaking was Anne Hendrickson, who heads Hampshire College's Population and Development Program. Hendrickson recently co-edited a special issue in the journal Gender, Culture, and Society on the use and abuse of overpopulation. After some opening statements, the debate between the panelists revolved around the idea of mobilizing the U.S. military in order to broaden the coalition fighting against climate change. In part one here, you'll hear the panelists' opening statements. Part two contains the discussion between the panelists as well as the audience and Q&A. First up, Betsy Hartman. Thank you very much, Omar, and thanks to um, Harry and to my fellow panelists who I've had the pleasure over the years of working with, so I'm really delighted to be here today. Um, as Omar said, the hardcover of this book appeared in 2017, um, and the paperback is released here for the first time. Um, in the paperback, I wrote um, a new prologue on beyond the Trump apocalypse, because this book came out just as Trump was um, stepping into power. Um, and I write about the need to guard against Trump exceptionalism, the notion that he is the worst and most dangerous president ever, bringing us to the brink of apocalypse. Of course, I often think that, but I try to guard against it. And I wrote this book because I think apocalyptic thinking can distort our sense of time and history. Um, whether of the religious or secular variety, it predisposes us to invest the current moment with prophetic intensity as a cataclysmic rupture that portends the end times. Now, I wrote most of this book before Trump's political ascendancy because I wanted to explore the historical continuities, not the ruptures, in how apocalyptic thinking has helped to justify American empire. And uh, I would just say memories may be sh naturally short, but apocalyptic thinking makes them even shorter. Trump exceptionalism casts far too rosy a glow over his predecessors. The reinvention of former President George W. Bush as a benign portrait painter of American war veterans is a case in point. Bush's invasion of Iraq, demonizing of Muslims, and denial of climate change have been too easily forgiven, if not forgotten. And Trump exceptionalism, 
exceptionalism has also deflected attention from the country's hyper-militarization in recent decades, our state of permanent war. Indeed, many Americans and many liberal Americans, I should add, now look to military and intelligence agencies as saviors who will protect us from Trump and restore America's rightful place as the greatest and most powerful nation on earth. Um, well, one way or the other, um, and I hope faster um, uh, rather than slower, the Trump presidency will come to an end. And when he departs office, I think we should resist the temptation to see his demise in apocalyptic terms, the death of the Antichrist and the birth of a new golden age. <laughs> the forces that produce Trump will persist long after he's gone, and no doubt there will be ironic twists. The love and legitimacy that many of his opponents are now lavishing on the military could mire us more deeply in permanent war. Um, well, I wrote this book um, to answer a series of questions that have been gnawing at me for a long time. What are the roots of American exceptionalism and why can't we get over it? What are the promises and perils of the bright side of apocalypse, the new Jerusalem, or the golden millennium that beckons the righteous? Why is American environmentalism, and this is relevant to the discussion today, so susceptible to doomsday thinking and to racial and gender stereotypes of overbreeding violent poor people destroying the planet and coming to get us? Why is the American left so obsessed with purity and perfection? Why in one of the most abundant countries on the earth do we have such a profound fear of scarcity? How does militarism feed and feed off our cultural propensity towards apocalypse and constrict our political imaginations, colonizing not only the present, but the future. Particularly important this is in this time of climate change. Well, this book addresses these themes and more in six chapters. I've got a chapter on war, on the Puritans, on utopian dreams and millennial madness, on the atomic bomb, on the Church of Malthus, and finally, climate change. And in this last chapter, I look at the fine line between reading climate change as the end of the world, an updated version of the book of Revelation, and addressing it as an urgent challenge that requires political will and practical action at multiple levels, from the local to the international. One of the major downsides of an apocalyptic approach, I argue, is that it can play into the hands of defense interests seeking to turn climate change into a national security threat that requires beefing up our borders and giving ever more power to the military. It can also play into the hands of the far right. Um, we're seeing today the rise of eco-fascism yet again, and the manifestos of the shooters in New Zealand and El Paso use kind of apocalyptic visions of overpopulation, migration, and climate change, very important parts of their um, worldview. So I would just say here that ideas have consequences, sometimes lethal ones. Next up was Michael Clare, who spoke about his most recent book, All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. Excited to be here for the very first event uh, to celebrate this book, and um, glad you're here with me for that occasion. Thank you for uh, holding this, and, and thank you for being here. So uh, my book is 
my interpretation of the U.S. military's assessment of the security implications of climate change. So I have to be very clear uh, that, it's, that this, this is my interpretation. I, I tried to provide some coherence to a ton. I have tons and tons of documents that I acquired. These are public documents, but they're not widely distributed. You won't find them for the most part in the UMass library, although they should be there, um, <coughs> most public libraries. Uh, but they, they are public, they are available documents, they're just not widely circulated. And I found these documents from the military, military to be quite extraordinary in, in many ways. Um, they are um, uh, quite, quite striking in the vehemence with which the military has identified climate change as a threat to U.S. national security and the importance in, with which they, uh, they identify taking action to address climate change, both preventive steps, um, adaptation, and, and actually taking action to reduce the military's own contribution to climate change. Um, uh, bear in mind that a lot of this literature uh, stopped becoming available or stopped being produced after Donald Trump took office. So a lot of it is from the um, Obama administration and before, but there's still quite a bit of it circulating out there and a lot of activity taking place, but it's a little harder to measure than it, than it was before. Um, this literature, of course, is in distinct opposition to what the administration says, that so in many respects, um, and that makes it equally interesting. Uh, when uh, Donald Trump took office, well, among the first things he did in his first months in office was to rescind an executive order from President Obama. Um, with, uh, I can look up the number, but doesn't matter, in which he said all federal agencies must take action to prepare for the uh, likelihood of climate change impacts on the United States, must identify those impacts on their operations and take such action as necessary to overcome those impacts. That became a requirement of all federal agencies, and they were all required to take um, action in accordance with the executive order. And the Department of Defense issued its own equivalent order to all commands, bases, installations to begin taking action to prepare for the onset of climate change and to adapt and mitigate it and so on. So um, when uh, President Trump took over, when Donald Trump took over, he rescinded that and said stop all of those activities and most agencies have. The Department of Defense has not. It's continued as before to the degree that I could tell to, um, to take action in response to climate change, although it, it uses different language. It talks about extreme weather events, natural disasters, and all kinds of other, um, um, you know, alternative language, but they, they're doing what they were doing before. So this makes this also interesting because, you know, you don't think of the Department of Defense as, as 
being resisting uh, the commander-in-chief. But that's essentially what they're doing, which makes this all entry very interesting. So I will talk, um, we're going to have another round of questions, exactly what, how they, how the military, um, you know, I'll go into more detail. Let me start from being very clear about this. The U.S. military does not identify climate change as among the top ranks to U.S. national security, as some have suggested. They're very clear. China is the number one threat, followed by Russia, North Korea, and Iran. They're very clear about that. That is the, those are the number one threats, and every, everything has to be organized to fight China and then Russia and those other countries. And in my new capacity, um, working in Washington for the Arms Control Association, I'm following closely what they're doing on that front, and that is terrifying, and, and we can talk about that if you want to. Uh, but that, that, that is their priority. They say, however, that uh, their ability to carry out their, what they see as their primary function is being eroded by climate change at an ever-increasing rate, and there will come a time when all hell is breaking loose from climate change, when they will be immobilized and unable to carry out their assigned responsibility to defend the nation against foreign enemies because they will be so completely hobbled by the effects of climate change. Therefore, to carry out what they think is their primary task of defending the nation against foreign enemies, climate change becomes an enemy as well. If you see that, it's not a primary enemy, but it is an obstacle to addressing their primary enemies. So, um, this is, this is uh, how they um, approach this. Why did I write this book? Let me finish that for now. Why did I write this book? I, I believe that, first of all, I believe and I imagine most of you in this room share this view that climate change is a, a primary threat facing all of us um, in this century and our descendants and its gathering momentum and the current effects, the current efforts to slow down warming and reverse it are not proving successful and we are headed to uh, easily surpassing the two degrees centigrade limit that scientists agree is the point beyond which uh, we cannot prevent catastrophic and irreversible effects like the melting of the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets le leading to 10 to 20 feet sea level rise and, the, and the, the inundation of major cities around the world. You know this. Um, I, I see this as, as at this point, um, un unstoppable. And, and, and I believe that um, the existing political environment in this country, I'm not interested in others, is a point where the debate has become deadlocked, has become frozen with uh, the, the climate change activism has become associated with the left, with the Democratic Party, the left of the Democratic Party, 
and those who, um, who are, are Republicans are on the other side are instinctively anti-climate action out of ideological preference and as a result no forward progress is possible as far as I could see, even if a Democrat is elected, if, assuming one house or another remains in Republican hands. And therefore, if we're going to actually uh, uh, overcome this threat, this logjam has to be broken. And the only way in my mind that the logjam can be broken is if additional constituencies who are not part of the left environmental coalition are brought in to a larger coalition. That means Republicans and conservatives have to be brought in to support a mass movement for whether you want to call it Green New Deal or something else. And, and I think uh, the one constituency that might have a chance of mobilizing that uh, those additional constituencies is the military or people associated with the military because they are not posing this as an ideological issue but as a national security threat uh, that um, if we care about this country, if we care about protecting the country down into the future, uh, then you have to take climate change seriously and you have to do something about it. Um, that is the argument that I present in the book. So um, I want you all to read it because I think there's a lot in it of value and I'll talk about that later, but I do not write the book for left uh, environmentalists because a lot of the information will be familiar to you. It's, the book is written in the hope that it will reach uh, Republicans and uh, you know and others who are, are not already part of our movement on climate change um, so I'll stop there also speaking was Anne Hendrickson director of the population and development program at Hampshire College about her most recent co-edited volume confronting populationism in gender, place, and culture. So the gender, place, and culture special issue and the other article that Omar mentioned in GeoForum, both are trying to answer this question of why overpopulation anxieties have found such a resurgence in this time of climate change. And why is this happening even as population growth rates decline, right? So in um, June of last year, I think the UN issued its 2019 World Population Prospects, which um, downwardly revises the overall population forecast because of consistently falling global fertility rates. And the average family size is half of what it was in the 1960s. So given this population picture, why are overpopulation anxieties on the rise and how are they, we're interested in how they impact policy and approaches to thinking about um, global problems and particularly climate change. Because unfortunately, neo-Malthusian thinking is really limiting the way that uh, people are interested in, in approaching climate change. And it becomes, again, about reducing numbers as the primary way to, to move forward. Right? Um, 
And it's important to recognize that today's overpopulation discourse is not about overall global population bomb so much as it is about demographic trends, right? So on the one hand, we're talking about a large and growing youth population in the global south, which is most often described through the idea of the youth bulge, so this dangerous youth bulge concept, or as a potentially lucrative uh, demographic dividend. And on the other hand, these, this youth population is held against this stagnant, burdensome, aging population in the north, um, which has its own security implications because it's presumably draining money away from military expenditure. Um, so this geopolitical conversation, when put in these terms, is really around a waning north and a rising, unruly, and, and threatening south. Um, and that South has the potential, as always, to sort of messily spill over borders in terms of South to North migration. And the policy prescriptions that we were seeing that were to address the, these population trends were really centering around population reduction through mass dissemination of contraception, um, but also the building borders and boundaries and the to keep people contained or excluded, and military buildup and heightened <coughs> surveillance. So my, uh, this, we wrote this as a feminist collective, and we wanted to t think about how we could challenge these manifestations of overpopulation in meaningful ways that um, would connect ideas and people and movements, so both scholars and um, social movements. Um, because even though neo-Malthusianism and the idea that sort of tired tropes and models um, that it brings with it through time, um, they, they never seem to get dated, but in challenging them, um, it's easy to be dismissed as sort of stuck in the 1990s and talking about population control that has, is part of a, a stigmatized past. So we really wanted to find a way to talk about these issues that uh, built connections, but also found real traction and couldn't be as easily dismissed as either talking about something that had long passed or just talking about narrowly fertility control and not recognizing that population control manifests in all of these different ways. So we started talking about the idea of populationism, um, so the ideologies that blame population for global problems, social, eco economic, and ecological. And we broke it down into three different um, parts. So demographic demo, biopopulationism to describe um, fertility controls and the ways that populations are engineered for either optimal size or optimal content, whether it be age or uh, ethnic group or religious group. Um, and then we talked about geopopulationism or geographic populationism that is about um, the building spaces that exclude or include. And an example could be uh, border walls, or it could be talking about prisons, or the ways land grabs or green grabs change, make land exclusive or exclusive, inclusive. And finally, we talked about biopopulationism, sort of this 
the biopolitical dimensions of valued life. So if population control determines um, in many ways who can be born and who is valued and who is who is not born, right? So if the sort of diff the that um, dimension of population control. Um, and so I think the, the main point of doing this work is really to intervene in meaningful ways and to find a way to stop the skew of, of climate change responses that were about containing or surveilling or um, limiting populations. Thank you for listening to Security in Context. You can check out part two as well as more content on securityincontext.com. Goodbye.